Good morning, Boker Tov. It should be a good morning for Kala Yisrael. May we hear Besoros, Tovos, Yeshuas, Vinachamos. We should hear good news, sweeping victory. Our hostages should be brought home. The army should be able to retire. And please, God, we should hear only, only good things. I want to thank our generous and series sponsors for the year, our dear friends, whom we are so grateful, Avi and Bella Morgan, in memory of Bella's mother, Dr. Ellen Chanzer, and in memory of Rabbi Dr. Brian Galbert. Also, this morning's shir is sponsored in honor of Rafua Shlemer, Shlema for Alexander Ben Rosa. Should have a complete and a speedy Rafua Shlema. You have uh, flyers on your chairs to remind you. This Motzei Shabbos, we are welcoming back and once again hosting Dr. Erica Brown, an amazing woman, an amazing speaker, Vice Provost of Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University, holding each other up in crisis. She's a wonderful speaker. That is this Motzei Shabbos at 8.30 p.m. Also, a reminder, if you uh, can, to turn your cell phones to silent. Thank you for the reminder. Shkoyach. Okay, a couple of Amuna emails, and then we'll dive back into the piece that we have been learning and hopefully finish it up from the great Rosh Hashiva of Yisrael Meir Druk Shlita. But a few, uh, a few emails first that continue to remind us of how to put our Amuna into practice. The beauty, the value of the emails, the reason I read them is that our Amuna is not theoretical, it's not academic, we don't study about it. But we are reading and sharing exa- examples of people who needed to employ and deploy it. And that gives us the courage and strength when we are in a situation that we can also dig deep, that we can also work out our Amuna muscle, that we can also see through the prism of Amuna and interpret what is happening in our lives in that way, which is really our parsha. I'll speak about it on Shabbos. So I don't want to spoil it now. But that's Yosef HaTzadik. That's this week's parsha. When you live your life with Amuna you are able to reframe everything in your life. When you don't have Amuna, then you can't reframe, and you feel you don't have the courage and you don't have the ability. It's called out. <laughs> you don't have the ability. Someone from Alaska, someone from Alaska just walked in. Someone, someone from Alaska. Is it snowing? Not quite snow. Okay. I'm not making fun, and if you can't, it's my wife. And she finds it endearing. It's all fine. It's all good, right? I have to ask Mechila. That's what happens if you come in late. That's what happens. You get in trouble. You're, uh, that's what happens. Then you make a grand entry. Where was I? Oh, Yosef Atzadik. I'm going to get emails. I'm mean to my wife. She finds it enduring and loving. Endearing. 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 And loving. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not mean. Both. Both. Yeah. Please be Mohammed. Yosef HaTzadik, if you live life with Amuna, whatever's happening in your world and in your life, there's the capacity to frame and reframe it, to adjust and pivot. If you don't, and you feel like a victim of everything happening in life, then it's very hard to get through any given day. We'll talk about that more on Shabbos. That's why we read these emails. So here is an email. Thank you, Rabbi Gore, blah, blah, blah. That really gives me the Amuna boost that lasts the whole week. I used to listen to this year online, but since the war started, I decided to attend in person. I didn't read this one last week, right? No. Listen to this one. This is an amazing story. I used to listen to the Shir online, but since the war started, I decided to attend in person so that I could join in the Tehillim at the end of Shir. And what a reminder. Stay after. We're going to recite and complete all of Sefer Tehillim. Just stay for a few minutes. We can divide Tehillim several times, complete all of Sefer Tehillim. Who knows if your booklet, your Tehillim, you staying and you contributing could be the Tehillim that puts something over the top. And if you don't believe that, listen to this email. Listen to this story. I used to listen to the Shir online, but since the war started, I decided to attend in person so that I can join in the Tehillim at the end of Shir. I'd like to share part of the reason Tehillim is so important to me. 
When I was going through chemo, my daughter up north told me she would say the whole Sefer every day for me as a schus. It was an, a huge accomplishment since she has dyslexia and it took her five hours daily. She always called after she finished the Sefer to tell me that she finished. One evening during this period, our family in Florida was eating together and I realized the piece of chicken I tried to swallow was stuck in my throat. I couldn't speak and I motioned to my family that I was in trouble. My son started panicking. Mommy's in trouble, mommy's choking. My husband got the kids and tried to pat my back, but the chicken was stuck in my throat. This was before we had Hatzalah locally. As I was trying to cough it up and not succeeding, I thought, what a way to leave this world. Not because of cancer, not Arab al-Kiddush Hashem, not the massive stuff I went through in my life, a piece of chicken. As I was thinking of all this, something my husband did finally worked and the obstruction released and I coughed it up Baruch Hashem. And just then, just then, I got a call from my daughter in New York. She had just completed several Tehillim for me. I thanked her and told them that Tehillim, told her that Tehillim saved my life. Since then I try to say a lot more Tehillim because I saw firsthand how powerful it is. As an aside, at my next visit to the clinic, I told the oncologist my story. He apologized and said he forgot to tell me that chemo sometimes causes muscle spasms in the throat. You have to be careful when you chew. Thank you for the shirim, blah, blah, blah. But, wow, the power of Tehillim. Just in that moment, her daughter reaching for the Tehillim just as she needed it while she was coughing. Absolutely incredible. So, if that doesn't motivate and inspire you to stay for Tehillim, I don't know what will, but our Tehillim is incredibly powerful. Next email. Rabbi Gobar, I listen to your shirim. I get some blah, blah, blah. I love living with the moon. I'm a strong believer. Everything happens for a reason. I have bought only one lottery ticket for each game for years, and I truly believe that things happen the way Hashem wants it to. If you're waiting to say she won the lottery and she's going to get all the BRS, that did not happen. I live in a uh, certain community in New York, a New York area, and I'm now in Israel with a friend for a week. Ever since the war started, I knew I needed to come here, and here I am. My friend and I arrived last week at a volunteer plan that we knew would be fluid. I have so many stories to tell, but one in particular stands out for the Amunashir. First though, on Monday we went to Bnei Nitzarim, a yeshuv half a mile from Egypt, eight miles from Gaza. It's one of the, one of the, uh, of Chalutza. We went for two days to help with, with farming. It was crazy. I was sitting on the sand, picking cherry tomatoes while listening to the Amunashir and listening to booms and airplanes. We were assuming it was the IDF doing all their work. Anyway, today we went to a shiva visit for a fallen soldier, and then we made our way to Hadassah Hospital to visit wounded soldiers who are in rehab. Our contact told us there was one particular wounded soldier who has been in the hospital a while and had four kids. The kids had nothing to do when they arrived to visit, and our contact asked if we could bring age-appropriate things for him to give to his children when they came. So, we bought games and books, and we went to the hospital. We were met by a soldier who was our contact there. She told us we were not allowed to go in and meet the soldiers because they were tired and visits were hard for them. She said she would give the toys to the soldier for us. We then said the soldier was expecting us according to our contact. She said she would call upstairs and see and then she said the soldier was sleeping. We walked with her to an area and gave her the toys. We were of course disappointed, but I channeled my Amuna brain and said, we were really there to help the soldiers. If it was too much for them, so be it. It wasn't really about us. I decided I wanted a picture of the rehab hospital sign. Right after I took the picture, we stood for a few minutes to regroup and figure out our next step. I then noticed a few guys with instruments walking into the hospital. I approached them and asked them if they were singing for the soldiers. They said, not the soldiers, but someone who was a victim of a bombing in Yerushalayim. I asked if we could join them, and they said we could. We went into the patient's room, and it turns out that one of the musicians was the victim's son. 
As the band was setting up, we introduced ourselves. We said from, we came from Tinek to visit. I asked if there was anything he wanted us to go home and tell others. First he said, Baruch Hashem, he survived, since the friend he was sitting with at the time did not. And second, he said, five minutes before the attack, he was learning that someone was complaining of a pain to his leg. But then he was reminded that he was lucky he didn't have a pain in his eye. The victim suffered a leg injury. His roommate is a wounded soldier. The music started. Turns out the patient is a Vigdor Spanier. Not sure if spelled correctly, he's a rabbi. The music was incredible. The rabbi had such joy in his face and sang along. There was a patient, a patient in a wheelchair in the hallway listening to the music. I asked the singers if he could join us, and he said, yes, so much joy in Amuna in the room. Our soldier contact from earlier walked into the room and was a little surprised to see us upstairs. She handed us back our bag of toys and asked if we wanted to give the soldier we were supposed to meet the gifts. We said, sure. She introduced us to the soldier that was listening to the music. We said to come and listen with us. We couldn't believe this is who we were supposed to meet. And we weren't allowed to. And then that was the person they invited into the room to come hear the music with them. We left the room, we gave him the toys directly ourselves. We had such amazing experiences. We're going home tonight. I have to process it all. Sorry this is so long. I just needed to share since I felt this was a real Amuna moment. We were disappointed not to see the soldiers. The musicians came at the exact moment we needed them to so we can go upstairs. The music and Amuna was so much more than we thought we could get. We were moved beyond words. Another incredible, incredible story. Beautiful, beautiful Amuna stories. Please keep the emails coming. I don't know about anybody else, but they give me tremendous chizak and inspiration. Uh, sorry, just having the AC raised in here because I don't want anyone to get pneumonia and I'm not sure why the AC is on. Back to Rav Druk. Rav Yisrael Meir Druk, we've been learning this piece, the Sicha that Rav Druk gave on Rosh Chodesh Kislev. We're now the eighth day of Teves. And Rav Druk was speaking about the power of those who are not physically on the front lines. The soldiers who deserve our greatest support and love and admiration and help and honor uh, are on the front lines risking their lives. In fact, tonight on Behind the Bima, we interview our dear friend Nir Rubin, who you may remember was a guest in our community several years ago through an amazing program called Peace of Mind. He and his unit came after fighting in Lebanon and losing soldiers then. They came here with their therapist. Peace of Mind is an incredible program in which with therapists they come for two weeks to work on PTSD, to work through things that Israelis generally like to deny they have to work through. And it was a new movement to get people to work through. We developed an incredibly close connection with that unit, with Nir in particular. And while we were in Israel a couple weeks ago, Nir came to the base, we made a barbecue. He's an incredible musician. He sang and he played. We spoke about it last week, Amanda Bima, and put the little clip of him singing the Mishaberach for Tzahal. And he left us that night from singing and dancing. And he went into Gaza and his commander was shot and killed and died in his arms. And I'm behind the bima tonight. He talks about what that was and kissing him and saying goodbye. But how powerful that was. And then he talks about Hashem and Amuna and fighting and why we are unstoppable and why they will win this war. These people are unbelievable. They're angels. 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 It's past Shabbos, Donna Cohn, her husband Aviad, killed on October 7th, defending not his Yeshuv, but the neighboring one of Prigan left six orphans, six children. They were here for Shabbos as well. And she's just beyond words. Her emuna, her faith, her connection to Hashem. Of course, her grief and her sadness. But these people, they are the hotspot that we connect through. When we struggle, when we suffer, when we're unsure if there is a Hashem, we connect through their hotspot, these, these people. 
They are extraordinary. So soldiers like Nir, his unit, his friends, hundreds of thousands on the front line, they are, they are the central part of winning this war. But we've been learning that we are all reservists. We're all called up. We're all con contributing our part. And that when we daven, that's the place where the miracle happens. The bracha was said on the rock that Moshe orchestrated the tefillah. That was the battlefield from which the battle was won. And Noah was responsible. Thank you. Noah was responsible. They're called, we last learned, the May Noah, the floods of Noah, because Noah could have and should have davened for his job. Ah, it wouldn't have helped. Ah, it wouldn't have helped. Avram Avinu saw that when you have less than 10, it doesn't help. He didn't ask. He didn't bother for less than 10. Noah had less than 10. That's why he didn't bother. It wouldn't have helped. And the last thing we left off with was Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz taught that a Jew cries out because they're in pain. Even if their cry won't necessarily bring about a different result, their cry won't transform the, the response. Nevertheless, when you're in pain, you scream ow. And if you didn't scream ouch, if you didn't scream ow, then what does that mean? You're not in pain. And if what's happening, if every day you wake up, if in the middle of the night you wake up and you long to hear a headline, no new soldiers, no new count, no new casualties, but we haven't had such a headline. I don't know that there's a day non-ceasefire, and even during the supposed ceasefire was a terror attack in Yerushalayim. We haven't had such a day. How are we not yelling ouch? How are we not in pain each and every day? If you can go through your day, if you're not tied to those news, if you're not checking, if life is ordinary and as usual, I think there's work to do. There's work to do. So Noah was responsible, they're called the May Noah, and we are accountable if we don't stay for the Tillim and say Tillim and contribute what we can, learning and davening and merits and schusim and achtas and ava and shalom and reyes and love and financial support and all the different ways that we're called upon to make a difference, then it correlates and corresponds with us and the difference that we could have made. We're in the second and last paragraph on the first side. In Cain. When the Jewish people are in a moment of crisis, a moment of difficulty, a challenging time, we have to be a part of this process. To cry out and to daven and to storm the gates of heaven, to tear up the heavenly decree. And don't worry, let God do His work. Don't make a cheshbon for why I shouldn't and don't bother and it doesn't matter and it won't add and it won't help and this is good, it's bad. Let Hashem do His part. He doesn't need your help. He's Hashem. He's Hashem. Our job is to be part of the community who are in pain, to be counted of those people who can't go on with life as usual and life as ordinary. And our job at this time is for the voice, the voice of Yaakov, to be louder and stronger than ever. As our rabbis say, the Medrash teaches, This past Shabbos we had, in addition to Dana, in addition to our dear friend Yedid Yaharush, just extraordinary heroes. They would tell you they're ordinary, and they are ordinary. They're not influenced, they're not influencers. They're not famous, they don't have a huge following online, but when you interact and engage and you hear their stories, there's nothing ordinary about them. Nothing ordinary about them. For those of you who are here, those of you who heard, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But we also, as part of this past weekend, had Brett Stevens, the great columnist, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, 
Anyway, I see the speech he gave on Shabbos was a dry run of the column that he published today in the, in the New York Times. Essentially the same ideas. But he had previously published about the October 8th Jew. And he talked about how after October 7th, the October 8th Jew has to be forever different. Not, no longer swooning over the institutions of prestige that we once held in high regard, but who abandoned us, betrayed us, stabbed us in the back, like the three Machashefas who run those three Ivy League institutions who can't even call genocide against Jews wrong, and other institutions like it. I asked him then, and I feel the same about his column now, the October 8th Jew, one of the things he omitted, and it was brilliant and beautiful and insightful and wonderful, and we're grateful he was here, and he has a lot of very important things to say. Again, he's been here before, and again, he stood in my office and gazed at the, I have a picture and I have a ksav yad in my office, a handwritten letter, not to me. He passed away long before I was born. Reb Chaim Grzynski, Brett Stevens, great-grandfather is a nephew of Reb Chaim Ozer. He's mishpach of Reb Chaim Ozer, so the brain's clearly passed down genetically in the family. But what's missing from his column and from that talk, again, I'm not blaming him, his background is different than ours, our Torah orientation, is that the October 8th Jew has to be more committed than ever to the Kol Koyakov. The October 8th Jew can't be a casual Jew anymore. There were and are so many casual Jews who are casual about their Judaism, maybe even checking all the correct boxes, Shabbos, kosher, Jewish day school, membership in a Jewish, in a shul, an Orthodox shul, observant shul, check, 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 check but casual about a relationship with Hashem, feeling His presence, talking to Him, hearing Him talk to us, walking around with pride, pride in being a Jew, walking around with a commitment to be a practicing Jew, that Judaism informs and Judaism inspires everything that we do and how we see the world and who we are and how we engage everything. October 8th, October 8th has to be the end of casual Judaism. October 8th has to be the end. October 7th should represent the death of a casual Judaism. And October 8th, among the, what he called for a commitment to strengthen the institutions that are aligned with our values, that welcome us and will protect us, but the October 8th Jew also has to be a proud Jew. And the October 8th Jew has to be a practicing Jew. And the October 8th Jew has to find their kol kol Yaakov, has to find their voice, the voice of Yaakov. Because Chazal tell us very simply, I wrote about this this past week, if I had a hundred million dollars, if I had a million dollars, if I had a hundred dollars, to try to impact anti-Semitism, I would not spend it on ads on TV, I would not spend it on lobbying members of Congress, I would not spend it on trying to get rid of presidents of Ivy League institutions, all of which are important and other people are doing and I'm grateful for it. But I would spend it on how we can inspire a greater kol kol Yaakov. How can we have more Jews practice more Judaism more proudly? Let's send a Magain David to every Jew who will wear one around their neck, a mezuzah to anyone who will hang it on the door, particularly on a college campus, candles to anyone who will light them, tzitzes to anyone who will wear them. Let's inspire and welcome and invite Judaism to lean into their Judaism. We are living in an incredible moment. This is all I think about. I had a wonderful conversation with someone who's become a, a good friend. The chief rabbi of South Africa, Warren Goldstein, is a really extraordinary person. This is on his mind, and, and we were talking about it the other day. There are Judaism who until now aligned, their Judaism was defined. The whole Judaism was social justice. And the institutions of social justice that was their expression and manifestation of their Judaism failed them, betrayed them, abandoned them. 
to me too, unless you're a Jew. It's black lives matter, but Jewish lives don't matter. And it's such institutions of wokeness and progressiveness. And there is an entire world who need to fill in something else. And there's a vacuum, there's an absence, there's an abscess, there's a hole. What will Judaism look like? But I'm not only speaking about the other. It's true about all of us. It's true about all of us. As anti-Semitism has spiked and is rising, there are those who want to kill us for being Jewish. Shouldn't we consider more what it means to be a Jew? Why is it important to continue this Jewish story, this Jewish legacy, this Jewish journey? Why does Judaism matter? Why is it worth fighting for? Why is it worth living for? Why is it worth what these soldiers do? Why is it worth dying for? Yedidya was at my home on uh, Motzei Shabbos talking to a few of us, and he described, he described Yedidya. Yedidya, who was the leader of Chalutza of Shlomit, who put the community on his shoulders on October 7th and stayed with them as they were relocated first to Gush Etzion, now to Kramim, and then went with his unit to go fight and has been in and out of Gaza, in and out of Gaza. And he described, I didn't know this, when you go into Gaza, when you go into war, I guess there's somewhere on the border that you pass through that they check your dog tags around your neck and apparently there's also some ID in your boots. And he said, in that moment, your life flashes before your eyes. They check your dog tags in case there's nothing else left of you to identify you with other than your dog tags. And he described in that moment, in that moment is the, you confront the reality that you might be going in, but you might not be coming out. And you think about your parents and your siblings, and if you're married, your wife and your children, you think about your life and where you've been, and you can't afford to think about any of those things once you're in. If you're in, you can't be thinking about anything other than your mission and what you have to do. But he described very vividly, for a moment, while they're checking your dog tag, for a moment, your life flashes before your eyes. So too many, too many, right now, are living with that reality of what does it mean to live as a Jew and what does it mean to be willing to die and to give it all up to be a Jew. And we need to, for those who need to fill in their Judaism with something new, and all of us who can elevate and enrich and inspire and upgrade our Judaism, have to go from a casual attitude about emuna and bitachon and dveikos, a casual attitude about our davening, a casual attitude to Torah learning, a casual attitude towards observance, a casual attitude towards Jewish pride, a casual attitude towards Jewish outreach. We live in maybe the most densely Jewish populated area outside of the land of Israel in the world. You understand that more than 50% of the people in, Palm Beach, in, in South Palm Beach County and Boca and Del Rey are Jewish. There are, there are 200,000 Jews in South Palm Beach County. We have to lean in and we have to work harder for that Kol Kol Yaakov, for that Kol Kol Yaakov. Because Chazal tell us, Bizman Shekolo Yaakov Matsui, when we have more Jewish pride and Jewish practice, when Jews are present in the shuls, then the lethal, dangerous, threatening hands of Esav cannot win. But when we're silenced, when we're muted, when we're casual, when we're embarrassed, when we're ashamed, when we're shy, when we're hiding, then then those anti-Semites so the real answer to anti-Semitism is, of course, lobbying, and of course it's confronting, and of course it's legislation. Yes, those are all critical components. 
But you know, and I won't call anyone out by name right now, the alphabet soup of, soup of Jewish institutions, I won't mention by name, millions, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent in organizations whose sole existence is to confront anti-Semitism, and the result is anti-Semitism at an all-time high. Anti-Semitism as the greatest hate crimes in America. So maybe it's time to rethink. Maybe it's time to do something different. Maybe it's time to shake it up. Maybe it's time to invest in other answers to anti-Semitism. And I would, I would argue to you that Hakol Koyakov, counterintuitively, that yes, it's about confronting anti-Semites, but it's also about confronting ourselves. It's almost easier to confront the anti-Semite, to call out, to be critical, to post on social media, to write to our friends, can you believe, did you see, we can't tolerate, this is no good, this is unconscionable, I'm outraged. That's easier. It's easier to confront the other, but maybe we also need to confront ourselves. Is our kol kol Yaakov? How is our Jewish pride? How is our Jewish practice? How is our Jewish outreach? Where are we? Are we casual? Are we amateurs? Or are we ready to go pro in our Judaism? We spoke about that on Shabbat Shuvah a few years ago, an incredible book that we worked off of and showed the Torah sources or origins of it, an amazing book called uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. The War of Art. Not the art of war, but the war of art. It's a little book. You'll finish it in one reading. Stephen Pressfield is a Yid. And in fact, we developed in that Shabbat Shuvah the war of art, he talks about resistance. And all throughout the book, when he talks about resistance, it struck me, this is the most eloquent description I ever heard of the Yitzhahara. And when I later looked, he actually wrote an essay online, Stephen Pressfield, saying that resistance is what's called the Yitzhahara. He's not a practicing Jew, but he's a Yid. I got to get him on behind the bima because his books are amazing. He wrote a great book about the Six-Day War and reconquering Yerushalayim. He wrote a book that became a famous movie. I forgot what it's called. I didn't read the book or watch the movie. I don't remember. But anyway, read the book, The War of Art. He calls it resistance. And in that book, he talks about that when do you have your breakthrough? When can you overcome resistance? This is a man who was homeless and slept in his car and couldn't get published until he was in his maybe 40s, maybe late 30s, I don't remember. And he spoke about the resistance, the resistance, the resistance that was holding him back. And how do you break through to achieve and accomplish your dreams, your aspirations, your vision, your hopes? How do you break through and overcome that resistance? And he speaks about it and he develops in this little book. Again, you'll finish it in one reading. The answer is you have to go from being an amateur to a professional. From an avocation to a vocation. And he talks about what that means and how you do it and the mechanics of it. And what we developed and all I thought about when I read it was that's Yiddishkeit. Are we amateur? Is Yiddishkeit like a habit, a hobby on the side? Is it a hobby on the side? Really, I'm a country club Jew. Really, I'm a fashionista. Really, I'm a professional. Really, I'm a business person. Really, I'm a this, I'm a that. I do a little Yiddishkeit on the side. I go to shul on the weekends. I send my kids to the Jewish school. I observe the holidays. On the side, it complements my life. I'm an amateur. I have a hobby. It's a hobby, Yiddishkeit. Or is Yiddishkeit not a, is it, a, is it our vocation? Is it our passion? Are, are we ready to turn pro? You overcome and you break through resistance when you're ready to become professional. Or do you want to stay an amateur throughout life? So Kol Kol Yaakov, are we ready to go professional? Or are we, are we just casual amateurs? Are we ready? That's where I'd put the money. That's where I'd invest it. That's where I'd hang billboards to invite all of us. I don't want to point fingers. It's the unaffiliate. It's all of us. All of us need to hold up that mirror and look at ourselves 
and confront ourselves and find our voice, our Kol Kol Yaakov, our voice of Yiddishkeit. Part of being an October 8th Jew has to mean the end of a casual Yiddishkeit. You see it all over Israel, this incredible spiritual awakening, this awakening of people who had never engaged and never encountered and were never interested, who are now open. And I don't want to romanticize or over-dramatize. It's not that the entire country now is keeping Shabbos. and it's, it's not. But a lot of people who previously not only were disinterested, they were actually opposed to, are now open. And what do we need to be open to, even within our observant lives? Are there aspects of observance that we were cynical about, that we had resistance to, that we're ready to finally take seriously? That we're ready to take seriously. And Rav Druk is describing this particularly about coming to Shul, going to Shurim, coming to the base Medrash, learning and davening and saying to him. But he's saying none of us, none of us have the right to say, unless just like with the real army, if somebody is eligible for the physical army, I shouldn't say the real army because the spiritual army is also the real army, but if somebody is eligible for the physical army, but let's say they go for their, what's it called? Evaluation, assessment, they're physical, there's another word, and let's say they're, they're disqualified. There's a physical disability, a mental or emotional disability, so they're exempt. Someone is exempt if being in the army will be hurtful or harmful to them. They're exempt. And I would argue the same thing is true here. And I want to say this with sensitivity because I've received emails from people who have their own mental struggles that if they would indeed engage the pain of what's going on right now, they would become debilitated. They, they, they f mentally, physically don't have the capacity to feel that sadness. If they would engage in a way that would feel the sadness, they would be so debilitated it would be harmful and almost irreparable to them. So just like the physical army, there are exemptions. I would say this also, spiritually associating, identifying, connecting, feeling an empathy for what's going on also, there are exemptions. And I want to say that clearly and with sensitivity. But if one does not fit into the exemption, which most do not, then we're all in this army, says Rav Druk. Nobody has the luxury of saying, I'm not in the army. We are all called up and we're all called upon and we are all reservists and we are all in. You'll hear from Nir Rubin tonight. If you listen, Nir Rubin fought in Lebanon and lost friends. He was done. He's out. He's got a wife and beautiful kids and lives on a yeshuv and plays incredible music all over Israel. He's done. He put in his time. He lost people. He gave a piece of his soul. But that doesn't work. That exemption doesn't qualify. He was called up. And he still has to go in. Yechavid and I last night were at the Hatzalah Gala and uh, they honored there a, a retired general whose son was killed on October 7th and in the middle of Shiva got up, put on his uniform, aborted and abandoned the Shiva to go fight because it was a Mechemes Mitzvah and he had a contribution to make, a commander, a leader, he put on a uniform in the middle of Shiva for his son who died in this war to go fight, to go fight. And the room, you could imagine, stood and applauded and honored him. These are unimaginable. He didn't do that because he would be in Miami at a gala and get recognition and honor. And he didn't do that because he, someone would write a book about him. He didn't do that so people would notice. 
He did that because it was desperate times called for desperate measures. He did it because he felt he didn't have a choice. And that's the feeling that we have to have about leaning into our Yiddishkeit, our kol kol Yaakov. Whatever it is, however it expresses itself, and it's different for each and one of, every one of us. For some it'll be davening, and others it's learning Torah, and others it's digging deeper to give more tzedakah, and others it's making peace with someone, and others it's experiencing more unity and having more space and tolerance and love for Jews who are different than you. It's time to finally let go of those preconceived notions and tension and hatred for the Jew who wears or looks or observes or does different. It's fine for you to walk over to them in shul, in the community, in the supermarket, and just give them a hug. And they're going to say, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> just give them a hug. And they say, what just happened? And just say, you know, I used to think X, Y, or Z about people who look like you, dress like you. I just want to give you a hug because I love you. Brother or sister, only do it if it's the same gender. It's appropriate. <laughs> Don't go, Rabbi Goldberg told me I have to give you a hug. You're going to find a chassid and a strimal. You're going to give him a big hug. Unless he's Nature Karta, then you can give him a hug too. But... Don't, don't do that either. I'm joking, don't do that either. But whatever it means for each and every one of us, how can our kol be a kol, kol Yaakov? How can our kol be a greater kol Yaakov? How are we going to express a greater voice of our Yiddishkeit? More Jewish pride, more Jewish practice, more Jewish passion, more Jewish, any other word you can think of with a P. We are all recruited into this battlefield. Turn the side. But there's really a question asks Rav Druk on this drasha of Chazal. Anytime the voice is not the voice of Yaakov, then the hands. Sorry, anytime the voice is the voice of Yaakov, then the hands will not be the hands of Esav. How did Chazal extrapolate that? How did Chazal learn that? From where did Chazal derive that? The verse, the Pasuk, seems to say exactly the opposite. Let me remind you of the story, because we are now long past it in the Pasha. What happened? Yitzchak is poised to give his son Esav a bracha. How come Yitzchak doesn't get it? Well, Rivka does. That's a topic for another time. But Yitzchak doesn't get it. And he favors Esav, and he believes Esav is the only one who has what it takes. I'll give you a little hint. You know what the answer is? The war of Tufshin Peidal, what you're watching right now. Because Yitzchak knows as the son of Avram and feels responsible to be the progenitor of the future of a Jewish people. And he says, who's going to have what it takes after on October 7th to have the singular focus and commitment against international pressure, and the United Nations, and even our great friend, the United States, to do what it takes to go fight and battle and eliminate Hamas. And then when you're done with that, Hezbollah. And then when you're done with that, the, the Yemen. And then when you're done with that, Iran. Who's going to have what it takes? And Yitzchak concludes to himself, the only one who's going to have what it takes is my Esav. Esav is the shtickle off the derech. I wish he came to Shul more. I wish he davened a little bit more. I wish he would learn with me when I ask him to learn. I wish he wore his yarmulke in public. But you know what? My hunter, warrior, battle son, muscular, brute, Esav, he's the only one who's going to continue this legacy. And Rivka says, boy, are you underestimating our Yaakov. You have no idea. Why? Because he's pale and meek and sits in the base medrash all day? Boy, are you underestimating our Yaakov. And Yitzchak, there's only one way that you're going to realize how much you're underestimating him. And you know how that is? 
I'm going to orchestrate with him to fool you. And when Yaakov is able to dress up and come before Yitzchak and fool his father and scheme and go in Mossad, we're talking, we're talking Shinbet Mossad, right? Mossad stories are unbelievable. My friend Daniel Katz once gave me a great book about the Mossad. It's the thickest thing. If you need a paperweight or a doorstop or you want to actually read it, I think it's called Mossad. I don't remember what it's called. It's an amazing book. You don't read it on Friday night because you won't be able to put it down. You won't sleep. It is just incredible stories of the Mossad's accomplishments and achievements. So what Yaakov does to get the bracha from Yitzchak is like an original Mossad story. Put on a disguise, dress up, learn the accent, the language, the furry hand, go in and walk out with the bracha. Take it away from the enemy, in this case, Esav. And who rises to the occasion and is able to accomplish it and pulls it off and gets it done? None other than the meek, weak yeshiva bachar, who his father dismissed him as an un- incapable and unable. Yaakov pulls it off. Yaakov pulls it off. You can imagine the pillow talk that night. Rivka says, no, Yitzchak, no. What do you think about Yaakov? Took that bracha for you. Had no idea. Huh? Huh? What do you think? You still think Yaakov can't do it? And I'll tell you, you know who's pulling it off in this war? When we were in Israel two weeks ago, we met with a minister who shared with us, he said, the war is not the time to talk about this. He said, so I can't talk about it publicly. You don't distinguish between soldiers. All soldiers are the same. We can't talk about it. But as of two weeks ago, he said, 41% of the soldiers who've been killed in combat are the religious soldiers. Because religious soldiers are disproportionately represented in combat units. You don't know that. Google it. You'll see the statistics. The religious soldiers, the Hezder soldiers, the soldiers, meek, weak, pale soldiers who divide their army time between being in the base medrash for a few years and then going to fight, they're the combat soldiers. They're the most passionate. They're the most driven. They're the most focused on what that cause is. And they're the ones, tragically, who are falling the most. Again, you'll hear Nir Rubin tonight talk about, after his commander died in his arms, how do you go back to continue to fight? And he talks about when you know your why, then you never ask how. When you know your why, you're not bothered by how. And these religious soldiers, they know their why. They know their why of what they're fighting for. They know their why. So Yaakov pulled that off, pulled that off. And when he pulls it off, Yitzchak says, something's, something's off here. Why? Hakol kol Yaakov, but hayadayim yidei Esav. Even with Yaakov, there's a little glitch. He almost didn't pull it off. Why? Because Yitzchak notices, hmm, the voice, something's wrong. The voice sounds like my Yaakov, but the furry, hairy hands and the food and the conversation, that's Esav. So that's how that Pasuk is originally communicated. Akol kol Yaakov. The voice is the voice of Yaakov, but there's an anomaly. Yadayim yidei Esav. So I ask sort of Druk, how do we go from the Pasuk saying, the voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the hands are the hands of Esav, to when the voice is the voice of Yaakov, then the hands can't be the hands of Esav? Where did Chazal derive that from? That's not what the Pasuk says. How could our rabbis derive and extrapolate a conclusion that flies in the face and contradicts exactly what the verse itself is saying? Shall we leave it here? Okay, Elaine wants us to solve the mystery. At least we'll start the answer. 
When Yitzhak said this Pasuk, he said it as a question. He said it as a question. Question mark? The reason he asked it as a question was, it's incompatible. It's inconceivable. It's incongruous. It's impossible. It can't be. It's not compatible. You can't simultaneously have the voice of the voice of Yaakov, and yet the hands be the hands of Esav. It wasn't that Yitzchak was noting an observation. Ooh, interesting. The voice of Yaakov, but the hands of Esav. No, he wasn't sharing an observation. He was asking a question. Can't be. Incompatible. They don't go together. Doesn't work. So Chazal understood it doesn't work. They don't go together, which means if we can live with a kol kol Yaakov, then we will avoid a yadai midei Esav. If we express and manifest and proclaim our kol kol Yaakov, our Yiddishkeit, if we go from amateur to pro, from avocation to vocation, from casual to serious, from dispassionate to passionate, then yadai midei Esav, then the anti-Semites can't touch us. They will be in fear of us. When they see Jews who stick together with unity, when they see Jews who practice proudly, when they see Jews who are unashamed and not defensive and unapologetic, then they think twice. That's what I wrote about two weeks ago. Hamas underestimated us, and so did we. That was the lesson that we learned from the generals that we met with in our trip. Hamas saw a country that was being described as on the brink of civil war, secular against religious, right against left, left against right. And they said, attack now, go, go. You know why? They're going to fall apart. They're going to blame one another. They're going to point fingers at one another. And they won't be able to come together to fight and respond to us. And boy, did they underestimate. And then they underestimated a second time. Because they said, all we need is a ceasefire of a few days. And then this wounded people are so wounded, they're going to say, you know, this quiet's not so bad. Let's just make a permanent ceasefire. They didn't understand. You didn't see one, I didn't see one headline, one opposition, one demonstration, one rally, one group, who when they went back to fighting said, no, 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 no. In Israel, I'm not talking about whatever outside of Israel. In Israel, you didn't find the most left-wing politician. Nobody in Israel said, you know, we have peace, it's quiet, let's leave it that way. Ferocious, fierce, ready to go back. Hamas consistently underestimated us. And we underestimated us of what it means and how we could come together with unity, with passion, with pride, with commitment, with Jewish practice. There was a video Yechevet shared just yesterday. If you're not on her status, if you want to be connected and inspired by what's going on in Judaism, get on her WhatsApp group and watch her status. She publishes a lot of very, very beautiful and inspiring things. And it was a pluga, it was a unit in the army about to go into Gaza singing Animamin. There wasn't like a soldier on the side. Like you go to an NCSY Shabbaton, I don't know about today. When I used to go, Simchas Torah at the shul, I'm trying to pull people in singing. There's always that guy, and he's too cool. He doesn't connect. He doesn't want to sing. Doesn't want to daven. Doesn't do it for me. There's no soldiers on the side. I'm too cool. This isn't for me. I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. I don't want to be in the video. These video, there's no, there's no, but doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. There's ani mamin be'emuna shlema. 
It's unbelievable. Hakol Kol Yaakov. Hamas underestimated the Kol Kol Yaakov. But I'm worried and you're worried. Is it going to last? Can we keep it? Can we grow it? Can we add to it? Can we bottle it? Can we secure it? And the answer is in us. The answer is in us. Hakol Kol Yaakov. And that's what he'll finish. We'll continue with this piece in Mir Tashem next week, Rav Druk. But that's the question each of us have to answer. What are we doing to find our Kol Kol Yaakov? Where is our Kol Kol Yaakov? Brett Stevens' outline of an October 8th Jew is brilliant and fantastic. We're not contradicting it, but it needs an addendum. The addendum to the October 8th Jew is the Jew finds their Kol Kol Yaakov. Please stay for Tehillim. Motzei Shabbos, don't forget, Dr. Erica Brown. Tonight, behind the Bima, Mitzvah Shem Wishirib Besoros Tovos.